Welcome to the DMC with Caroline Veek, a home for deep, meaningful conversations about politics, world affairs, and other important topics that fascinate and compel us. Let's get into it. All right. Well, welcome. Gubernatorial candidate Zelda. Lee. Lee, thank you all for joining us. I think this should be a really, hopefully, fascinating conversation. So I'll just jump right into it with a semi-intensely personal question. How would you describe yourself? What matters most to you? My grandparents on my father's side were married for over 70 years. And if they lost everything in life, if they didn't have any money, if they didn't have a home, they didn't have any friends, and they were like left living in a cardboard box in the street, they define success in life as just finding each other. And meanwhile, my parents were divorced and remarried growing up. I actually went through three divorces. So I got a chance to see all ends of how this can uh, unfold. But, but family is the most important. I, I couldn't be running this race right now. I couldn't be making this effort if not for the support of family. That's, that's where I find my balance. I learned a lesson during my first term in the New York State Senate. And on top of making sure you maintain the right balance with family, you have to eat right, you have to exercise, you have to sleep right. If you do those four things, uh, you're pretty, pretty well along. But you know, as far as what motivates me, I wish I could brag that it was, well, no one should be bragging that it's their sleep. That's a whole other issue. No one should be, uh, if you're bragging that the most important thing to you is your workout, <laughs> then you probably should have a conversation with uh, somebody. And if the, your biggest thing in life is eating, then that's a whole other issue. So but for me, I would say of what I find is the priorities of life to, keep, to stay balanced is making sure that this family, that I am the fourth highest ranking person of, is, is happy, is involved, is, uh, is engaged. And as long as we're strong, everything else is a bonus. What got you into politics? When I was in college, I got a little bit involved, and then I got pretty quickly totally turned off. And I wanted nothing to do with it. And I decided when I was about 19, 20 years old, somewhere around there, that there, there'd be no way for me to survive in politics without compromising who I was and what I believed in. I was not ready and I went off, uh, I remember during three years of law school, had nothing to do with politics, wasn't interested, wasn't following it. Uh, four years on active duty in the Army, wasn't following it, wasn't engaged. So this is a seven-year stretch where I was just totally turned off by all of it. I, by the way, politics, in many respects, I see every day not just the good things, but I also get exposed all day long to the worst of human nature. Now you want to throw social media on top of it. And people can anonymously show you their worst side and no one even knows that they're doing it. When I got off active duty, I came home. The whole changeover was pretty sudden. My uh, daughters were born 14 and a half weeks early. They were less than a pound and a half, three and a half months in the NICU. They came home on heart monitors, dozen medications each. Uh, their story is is amazing, but my priority in life ended up changing from wanting to do 
a full military career. My plan was my next assignment, I was in the 82nd Airborne Division at the time. I was either going to go to 173rd Airborne Brigade in Vincenza, Italy. Beautiful place if you have never been. It's like natural amphitheaters all around you. It's about 40 minutes out of Venice. It's worth the trip. You could go by train. The other is staying at Fort Bragg and being a legal advisor with the, uh, the Delta Force, which doesn't exist. I wanted to go be the legal advisor with the Delta Force. And then all of a sudden, you have kids, and they're going through their struggles, and that becomes most important priorities change. I came home, and I was thinking about how to continue serving. I decided to stay in the Army Reserve. I'm still in today. I'm in my, my 20th year now. And I ended up running for office. And there are people who say, you can't run for office. You're only 27 years old. 20 years old, you have to wait. You have to do your time. I, I just started running for Congress. And I get all these young kids who come up to me all the time, like, how do you run for Congress? And they, and they want to know exactly every step of the path. And they want to replicate it. And actually, the best way to, go to, to get to Congress is just go live your life. Do what you want to do. Go get an occupation you love. Get some experience. There's no single way to, to get to Congress. We say, well, how do you be a candidate for Congress? This is really easy. Just you just go online, download the form. It takes you about five minutes. And now you're a candidate to, for, uh, for Congress. So something that when, when that spark was going back off to decide to run, I remembered instantly. I was self-reflecting on what turned me off in the first place. And I realized that I knew exactly how to survive in politics without compromising who I was. And for me, when I knew that I could be who I, I, I am to my core, then, then it kicked back in. Then I got motivated. All right. So what was the trigger that originally turned you off? And then what was the moment where you realized that you could withstand it? Oh, great questions. So I remember, so I'm at University at Albany. Harvard on the Hudson, I should say. <laughs> I said Harvard on Hudson. Hope, you know, I know there's probably a couple of Harvard folks. I hope you don't mind uh, the nickname. It made us feel good at the State University of New York at Albany. And there was, uh, so I got a little active with the, the college Republicans there on campus. By the way, I learned the power of pizza and beer. <laughs> um, the, the membership had about nine people. And then I took over the college Republicans. I don't know if I missed a meeting or I don't know how that happened, but all of a sudden I became the president as a freshman. The next meeting I advertised, put posters all over campus to come to a college Republican meeting, free pizza, free beer. And the next meeting, the next month, I had 128 <laughs> members of the college Republicans we took off. Politics is easy. You know, we're going right into a presidential race. So to date myself, I'm 42 years old. So if you think about it, we're going to the 2000 presidential race. And there were people who wanted to support all different kinds of candidates. I mean, every, everybody was represented. And I, I remember there was, a, there was interest on John McCain's campaign to come to SUNY Albany for an event. But the infrastructure in the Republican Party was supporting George Bush. And they quashed this McCain event. I mean, it killed it. It never ended up taking off. And that was a turnoff. But I, it was my first experience with this. I, I didn't, I stayed active. I spent a little time processing what had just happened. There was a big event going on in New Hampshire. And Gary Bauer, who if you remember, he was polling, I think, like eight out of seven around that time, 
offered to have his campaign bus stop in Albany to pick us up. He was going to bring us to this presidential event in New Hampshire, and he was the only one offering. So we're a bunch of college Republicans, and we'd love to go to it. Every single presidential candidate was going to be there. And then they quashed it. And the backstory of that was, was nutty, but it was related to some backroom politics, like where us college kids can't go to this political event to see every presidential candidate. Steve Forbes was having a, an event at the Waldorf Astoria. Now, I've, I'm, we're 0 for 2. But now, and I've really, I've really reflected on this whole experience, and, and it's really not sitting right with me. And Steve Forbes' campaign offers that we can go to the Waldorf Astoria for this big uh, campaign fundraiser. And uh, I said, sure. And that we put a group, a group together. We'll, we'll be there. It wasn't that when McCain was coming that everyone involved in that was supporting McCain and everyone supporting Gary Bauer who wanted to get in the bus. And not everybody who was going down to Steve Forbes' event was supporting Steve Forbes. And they tried to... Who's they? they some some people. I'm surprised. They some people in the in the establishment at that time, the powers that be, and uh, so we decided, you know, we're we're gonna go because we started getting, they started giving us a hard time. We're like, no, we're gonna we're gonna go, and just this whole thing around the 2000 presidential race, we were like ostracized. We were outcasts up in Albany. And it was just a bunch of college kids. Folks wanted to get internships. They wanted to go volunteer on campaigns. They just wanted some basic experience. And, and I realized that this wasn't, this wasn't for me. I mean, I, I didn't, I was kind of rolled by it. And then you see other people get mad at you because I was the president of the college Republicans. So they, they would get mad at me that this is happening, but I, it wasn't my fault. I, but I wasn't strong enough to realize that first time, like what was happening, why it was happening, how to fight back, even though these people are uh, more powerful than I am. I don't know, it's got turned off. Interesting. And that was it, 2000 presidential race. After that, I was, I was pretty much done. And does the same stuff get to you now, or are you? No. Like what's the worst Nothing moment gets to you've me. had? I, I, I have, I would say, I mean, while we are here for this hour, if somebody really wanted to get, get an experience in the life of, you go scroll through all social media platforms and keep tally of how many negative comments and worse you find that's coming at us. Uh, I'm, I'm Jewish. I co-chair the House Republican Israel Caucus. I, I serve on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. When I got to Congress, I was one of two Jews. When I got to Congress, I was the only Jewish Republican. Really? Now there's two of them. Yeah, I was the highest ranking and lowest ranking Jewish Republican <laughs> in Congress. Our numbers have skyrocketed. There's now two of us. And, you know, I, I, would, I, I would just say that the, like, the first year after what happened in Charlottesville... I probably got called a Nazi or Nazi sympathizer or some other horrible nickname 3,000 times. I mean, we had interns in the office. They're just, they're in college. They're trying to get some experience. 
And they're just, they're picking up the phone one after another, just getting yelled at at people from all across the entire country. And by the way, threatening them. He's like a little kid. We have some constituents who are a little bit uh, friendlier, like in the middle of that, you know, if you want to represent the first congressional district of New York, you'll recognize a bunch of names, you know, people who you know. The first one who went after me was Mark Ruffalo, which was disappointing. So I was I was a kind of a fan. He's still you know, he's kind of worked me back a little bit as I separate. It's been a lot of time. We had Rosie O'Donnell. She was she's gone after me a lot. Alec Baldwin always campaigns against me. John Lake Ozamo's t- taking his shots along the way. Deborah Messing, she's come after me a couple times. <laughs> the most disappointing though was the voice of Baby Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy. Everybody loves Groot. From you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh come on. Well at least you. We have a couple people, I would hope. There we go. We got one. Thank you. So anyway, we have, you know, the the constituent will call the intern who doesn't know some of these people. Of course, everyone knows Baby Gert. The the person's complaining about me, and you're asking for their name, and they're spelling out Christy Brinkley, and they have no idea who that is. Uh, So that's what happens when you're you're the congressman for the first congressional district. And while there are some people who call it very polite, Christy Brinkley would be very polite to the intern. Uh, other people were pretty, pretty nasty. I, I, there's nothing that anyone can say to me here that can possibly hurt my feelings. I've, I've now experienced all of the elements of politics. But the Including one thing being that... being stabbed. Yeah, well, almost, right? Uh, the one thing that... Uh, the, the one thing that, re- that I'm hypersensitive to is that 18-year-old, that 19-year-old, that 20-year-old who is interested in politics, they are just getting an experience for the first time. I could totally put myself in their shoes at, at any moment, and I'm just very sensitive to what's happening around them. I mean, we're busy with the campaign. There's a lot of younger people. You don't get a chance to spend as much time with everyone as you want to, but that's something that I'm hyper hypersensitive to. Fortunately, I, I, I rekindled that interest. Others might get turned off, and then they just never get involved at all. Uh, I had a meeting about two months ago. I'm here in New York City. The guy's in like late 50s, early 60s maybe. Successful business owner. Really informed, passionate. He knows the issues. We're having a great conversation. And then he says about a half hour into the meeting, you know what? I'm going to register to vote. Wait, you're not even registered? If you go walking door to door in your neighborhood, the one thing that is so surprising, I I still don't get used to it, is that they give you a list and you're skipping all these different houses. Now, one might think I'm skipping all these houses because maybe they're, you know, like they they have me walking to registered Republicans or conservatives or independents. Maybe it's a door where there's a a Democrat and for the sake of time and this ED, maybe they just have me skipping. Or maybe it's people we've already identified as supporting us or identified as not supporting us. Or maybe they're registered, but they are just not a very active voter. If you really dig into it, it is wild. How many people? Yeah, like... How is it possible that Bill de Blasio got elected to a second term? Because a whole lot of people who understand that we can do better as a city 
they aren't they aren't registered or they are registered and they're just not voting. So on the division question, I saw a poll the other day that said 69% of Democrats and 69% of Republicans both think democracy is on the brink. One, do you think they're right? And then the broader question is, is this a uniquely divisive time? Or do you think that, you know, it's been worse many other times in our history and we'll ride this one out just like we read, read out the other ones? I think it's really bad right now. Uh, I think that it's it's actually, in many respects, worse in a way, the further that you get away from power, there are exceptions. I mean, you could point to re- just like a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, my opponent declared that this lifelong New Yorker only spent four years outside of New York my entire life, was four years on active duty in the Army. I, she declared, I'm no longer a New Yorker and I have to get on a bus and move to Florida. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I, although I did take her advice, kind of. The next day I got in my car and I went to Florida, New York. <laughs> and I was endorsed by the mayor of Florida, New York. It's in Orange County, by the way. But I'm not leaving the state. If you want to be the governor of the state of New York, you have to be willing to be the governor of all New Yorkers. And there are people in government who believe that if you do not agree with me, if, you, uh, if, if I'm right, you're left, you're left, I'm right, that you should be silenced, censored. You shouldn't, have, you shouldn't have your social media accounts, shouldn't even be live. You should just get canceled. People should be, pro, should be sitting, they should do a, a sit-in in my driveway just all day, every day, and they're lucky that that's all that I have to deal with. Like, there are people like that who are out there. There are a few people in government who encourage it. I serve on the House Financial Services Committee with Maxine Waters, she, she, you know, she's encouraged physical confrontation of people who are on the other side of the aisle. I was in Congress when the Steve Scalise shooting took place. Somebody going way overboard and taking matters into their own hands with a kill list showing up at this baseball practice field trying to murder as many members of Congress as, as they could. I didn't like President Biden's speech last week. I thought it was divisive. Um, we all should always strive to be better. So any member of 535 members of Congress, no matter how good you are, you should always strive to try to find a way to be better. But where it gets worse is there's a thought outside of Congress, especially the further you get removed from Congress, that we all are at war with each other, that we hate each other, that we're sitting there on the floor of the House of Representatives and it's old school duels to the death that um, we just can't stand each other. And what actually happens, if you're sitting in the gallery of the House of Representatives and there's a debate going on, what you will witness is everybody talking to everybody. Now, there are some people who don't get along. There are, yeah, there are two or three people I don't, you know, I probably stay away from, but for the who most does? part. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of Elon Omar. Um, Why? I'm not a fan of Adam Schiff anymore. I... So, you know, it's interesting. So Rashida Tlaib is a member of Congress who shares certain viewpoints 
that you hear Elon Omar also communicating. They're, they're aligned on particular issues, but Rashida is much more engaging one-on-one. She wants to, she wants to talk to you. She will, she'll engage you on the most controversial issue possible. And by the way, she actually wants to change your mind. Like she'll come up to me wanting to talk to me and her goal is that five minutes later, she wants me to support her effort to like abolish Israel. (laughs) And it's pretty remarkable that she comes up like that motivated, like thinking that she's gonna make this type of progress. She's not even trying to- She still believes in persuasion. She's not trying to start small. I will tell you though that you know, I, I was asked very early on when the squad first came to Congress, painting one broad brush, AOC, uh, Ayanna Presley, Elon Omar, and Rashida Tlaib. And, and I've actually known Ayanna Presley longer than any other member of Congress. I've known her for forever. And, uh, and, and we're friendly. We disagree on all sorts of different things, but we're always very friendly with each other. AOC earned... While I disagree with uh, Ocasio-Cortez on a lot, there was one experience that I had when she first got there that, that I thought was really good. Now, when we were walking from the Capitol to the, the house office buildings, there's a tunnel underground. And I'm walking with her. She actually grew up with, in school with my first cousin, Yorktown Heights. This whole story that, you know, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is from the city and didn't have any money. And she actually was raised in Yorktown Heights, Upper middle income upbringing. Her father was very well off. So that part of the story is a little bit skewed. Um, When I first met AOC, I sat down next to her in a House Financial Services Committee hearing, and she didn't know who I was. We never met before. I didn't know who she was. She just got there. But I knew the story from my, my cousin. So I pull out my phone, and she actually looks at my phone before she looks at me. And it's a photo of her in elementary school. <laughs> and I start scanning through my phone of these photos of her in elementary school. And then she looks at me and she's like, where did you get those? I say, I promise you, I will never share any of these photos with anyone. But Samantha Goldstein is my, my first cousin. So we're walking in a tunnel and we pass a Capitol Police officer security desk. And by the way, these guys are mostly conservatives. They lean right. Not all of them, but definitely most of them. And as you're walking, we might be having our conversations with each other. Maybe you're looking at your phone. Maybe you're looking down. You have a place to go to. She had just gotten there, and she has so much focus and attention on her as this freshman member of Congress. She easily could have just kept walking, looking down, looking at the phone, just try to get to my destination without having a thousand more people stop me because that's her experience on the Hill. And we go to the Capitol Police, we're we're passing the Capitol Police Officer Station and she stops and she goes over and she says, thank you for your service. And it was shaking the hand of every Capitol Police Officer. And I was like, "That's, that's pretty cool. The way I described it was this, the first time I was asked about this on national TV. Tlaib and Omar's hearts are filled with darkness. AOC's heart is filled with cotton candy and unicorns. (laughs) Omar is somebody who is not engaging. 
she is not she's not she's not friendly she's not looking to to you know to talk to you know to work together at that level i do not believe that she has a vision for our country that is uh, anywhere aligned with what my vision is for uh, for our country. Stephen Colbert, by the way, that night uh, on The Late Show had all sorts of one-liners off of my AOC's heart is filled with cotton candy unicorns. And he was talking about how I was actually trying to invite her to the socialist prom with me. And <laughs> But anyway, that's, that's a little bit of the background of, of Omar. I mean, she came in... And she just started rattling off, you know, like if you support Israel, it's all about the Benjamins. Basically, the only reason why you would support Israel is that you're paid off by Jews. There's just a number of comments that she made where it's just not my cup of tea, not even close. So speaking of vision for the country, what's your vision for the country? If you could snap your fingers today and, you know, institute utopia, what does that look like? We have to guard the republic. Our core document is the Constitution. Our flag means something to me. That our, our freedoms and liberties have to be defended. Our border needs to be secure. Our foreign policy needs to be strong, consistent, and effective. We need to care about making decisions that are not just getting you through your next election, but setting up that generation not even old enough to vote to be able to inherit more opportunity, more stability than we have it. Uh, I'm seeing an erosion of our, our fundamentals as a, as a nation. It's, it's really not something to overthink. We, we have so many lessons learned from generations past on how to, to, how to do this. If we are protecting our nation as a strong constitutional republic, we have values as a, a nation that are understood by its people and by others. Which of those values do you hold most dear? Freedom. Freedom and liberty. I believe that if you're ever exchanging freedom and liberty with the government, the only exchange should be government giving you more freedom more liberty. There are people who want to hoard power. They believe that we want to be ruled. This is the United States of America. We want to be in charge of our own government. Here in New York, we want to be in charge of our own government. We don't want government in charge of our lives. When we rarely get our money back, just give us the money back. Don't give me my money back and expect me to say thank you for it. Now, <laughs> if, you, if you're notifying the public that this is what you are working on so that people know that you're doing your job. That's one thing. But if you're giving somebody a tax check back and it's coming with a handwritten note that this is courtesy of, you know, President Caroline Vick. How's that sound? Uh, President Caroline Vick. But you're giving me my money back. I mean, it's bad enough that you put your hand in my pocket and took my money out while I wasn't looking there are people in government who expect that thank you. But as far as the values go, I mean, I could rattle off many, but I think that exchange of freedom where government takes it away, as if that's a successful day. If you're, if you're here in New York and you're trying to get a permit from the, the state DEC and someone who's sitting in a cubicle is fining you for something that they shouldn't, 
that you as the business owner have a decision to make. I can either fight the fine, it'll take a while, it'll be a lot of aggravation, I think I'll win, but I'm not sure, or I could just pay off the fine, be done with it, not have to fight it, and I'll make more in the long run. Sounds like extortion. When the state liquor authority is showing up to your business or your restaurant and harassing you, let's say it's even earlier in the pandemic, they're harassing you because you answered the door and you're not wearing a mask, but you're closed. No one's in your restaurant and they're fining you for not wearing a mask all by yourself inside of your restaurant. It's because that person who's walking the street feels like they didn't do enough with their power unless they find someone to torture and to, and to provide that, to provide that fine to. So these are my, these are my pet peeves is just about protecting protecting people from the government. I want the, the government serves a very important purpose. Okay, and there, there, are, there are basics, especially security, especially protecting our national security and our borders. But I think that there's too much of an effort stepping all over that by some who get too much power. All right, let's run through a couple policy topics. Abortion, big picture, how do you think about it? What do you think the right policy is for New York? So New York a few years ago codified far more than Roe. When we woke up the morning after the Dobbs decision, the law in New York was exactly the same as it was the morning before. Nothing changed. Do you think the line is the right one? What's that? Like, do you think where the this law draws the line is the right place to draw the line? Well, so where I have articulated a, a particular issue is that in New York you could do right to the end of the ninth month. I have found that a whole lot of people who consider themselves to be pro-life and people who consider themselves to be pro-choice agree that that goes too far. We have right now a Democratic legislature. The, Democrat, the, the state assembly is not going to flip. There will be a lot more assembly Republicans elected, but not enough to flip the state assembly. The state Senate is interesting. It's a big uphill battle. It's possible. The most likely outcome, I mean, the Senate, there will be a lot more Republicans elected to the state Senate. As far as what that number ends up being, we'll see. That legislature, there's no way that Carl Hasty in the New York State Assembly is sending a bill that's going to make any type of change. And quite frankly, the reason why I'm in this race is to save this state. Uh, my, my top issues are crime and the economy. That's what my focus is on. That's why I'm in this race. I want to make the streets safer. I want to make life in New York more affordable. I want to protect freedom. I want a government that you all can be proud of. I am all about finding common ground, however possible. Every year, Georgetown University and the Luger Center ranks all 435 members of the House based on how bipartisan they are. Out of 435, the last year they came out, I was ranked 19. The year before that, I was ranked 12. The people say, well, how is that possible? Because I heard you speak up on this issue or that issue or that issue. This is America. You're allowed to. We encourage you to speak up on what you're passionate about. We can debate. We can disagree. But at the end of the day, we also have a job to try to find common ground however possible. And if you were to have that conversation of where can you find common ground on that topic it's most likely that that late term. All right, crime. How do you fight crime and how do you think about balancing say safety with you know liberty and justice for maybe those who are accused that are not? 
guilty. We need to repeal cashless bail in the state, give judges discretion to weigh dangerousness and flight risk and pass criminal record, seriousness of the offense on far more offenses. Judges want discretion. Mayor Adams is asking for judges to have discretion. He's right. Mayor Adams is calling for a special session in the New York State Legislature. He's right. Uh, I support him uh, on that call. I served in the State Senate with Mayor Adams. Uh, we stayed in touch since. I believe that the story in 2023 that will be written is how well a Governor Zeldin is working with a Mayor Adams to save New York City. Right at the top of the list is making our streets and our subways safe again. Cashless bail is part of it. Amending raise the age is part of it. Repealing the HALT Act. Overhauling the parole board. Making it a unanimous vote instead of a majority vote. Providing for victims' rights. Making sure that people who uh, are a victim of a rape, if you're a family member of someone who's murdered, it's a cop killer, your testimony should be factored into that decision-making process as to whether or not to release that person from parole. Um, I believe that we should protect qualified immunity in New York City. They've been attacking it. There are people up in Albany who want to do the same. We should pass a law enforcement bill of rights. Now, if you were to, to, to get to an example that's at the heart of your second part of your question, someone who would advocate for cashless bail to get passed would say, if it's a low-level offense, you have a clean record, you're not a danger to society, you're not a flight risk, and the only reason why you'd be stuck in prison is because you cannot afford $100 in bail. Well, yes, yeah, why we're all calling for judges to have discretion. I would argue that if you are a Mexican cartel drug smuggler busted with $1.2 million worth of crystal meth in Inwood, you should not be instantly released on cashless bail. And if you don't plan ahead for your possible arrest, and the need to set bail, that makes you a bad criminal, a bad drug dealer, a bad businessman. But cashless bail should not apply to you. So I, I feel like there always needs to be a balance. It's always about law-abiding New Yorkers first. It's about law enforcement. It's about making streets belong to all of you. All of you feel safe, that you can ride a subway without having to grab onto a guardrail or hug a pole because you're afraid of being pushed in front of an oncoming subway car. That is the top priority. But, but there are people who are in office who believe that the top priority is to make sure that you're sticking up for the person who wants to push you in front of the subway car. And that seems backwards to me. So if there's another pandemic, what would be your approach? A lot at the very beginning of the pandemic was went right. If you look at the first few weeks of March, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're in Washington, New York, or your local municipality, everybody everywhere was working together. We were Americans. We were New Yorkers. Uh, we would tune into uh, Governor Cuomo's press conferences because we wanted information. We would watch, we would watch press conferences for other governors who lived nowhere near New York just because we wanted to know what was going on there. We would pay attention to the press conferences coming out of Washington. We want to see what's happening at the, the national level. We, want, we were thirsty for information. People wanted facts, wanted to know what's going on, how this is impacting us. And I remember how well it was working in New York, where New York was, was asking the federal government for approvals on public lab testing, on private lab testing, on semi-automated testing. Approved, approved, approved. 
I remember when we needed PPE and that required, it was late on a Saturday night. It was like 10, 11 o'clock hour. I'm going back and forth with Jared Kushner in the White House and Lisa Black, who's the chief of staff for Suffolk County Executive Steve Ballone. And the next day, uh, the president is at the podium saying, at the request of Congressman Zeldin, we're sending X amount of you know, masks to Suffolk right away. And like within 48 or 72 hours, we ended up getting even far more than what, what was promised. It was awesome how well everyone was working together. We had the Javits Center that came online. We had the USNS Comfort that was brought up. Everyone's on the same page working together. The best lesson learned of the early stages of the pandemic, the first few weeks, that's the right attitude. Uh, I would say that for, for me, what changed in New York was primarily threefold, if I was talking about the New York-specific dynamic here. One was the closer that the November election got, the more politicized it got. Second was the nursing home order and how that all uh, unfolded. And Governor Cuomo, who was larger than life as far as his polling. I mean, people were talking about swapping him in for Joe Biden even though the primaries were done, that's how popular he was at that moment. He had Chris Cuomo on at a press conference, and he made a, a comment to Chris where he said, you have an hour on CNN, but here it's the Cuomo show 24-7. And I, I think that there are lessons learned in all three of, of those points. The, the, the first point, it's in this country, it's, you get closer to high stakes presidential election, they'll probably, no matter what, there'll be some level of politics to get injected. But I mentioned to you earlier, I'm the fourth highest ranking person in my house. That wouldn't change. I'm in the military. I'm outranked by a lot of people. A lot of sirs and ma'ams coming out of my mouth in military do. That doesn't change. There are people who keep me grounded who are constituents, who like what I'm doing, agree with everything, and don't like what I'm doing, and they disagree with everything, and all sorts of combos in between. You have to keep your feet planted and not let your head and everything just kind of take off off the ground. And remember when I said people were thirsty for information? Well, what happened around that nursing home order was made a lot worse when so much info was covered up. And I think one of the main reasons uh, for the cover-up was uh, the governor secured a, uh, a pretty hefty book deal $5.1 million book deal. And, and they were using their staff to help write it. And he was getting an Emmy Award for it. He just got so invested in what got him at, to that, at that next level. And everyone, I mean, he clearly had to have known that if they were transparent with the public, it was over. But that's your job. You have to be transparent. And, and I would suggest that if someone's offering you a $5 million book deal just to congratulate yourself on you know, how good of a job you're doing as a governor or a president or a member of Congress or whatever, you probably should just turn the deal down. I mean, in, in Congress, I have not executed a single stock transaction since I've been there. I will tell you that if I wanted to take a very different approach to serving in Congress, you'd be looking at my financial disclosures and you'd be like, wow, he made a lot of money as a member of Congress. How did he do that? Well, as a member of the House Financial Services Committee, there are times where I am at an IPO desk, 
you know, at NASDAQ, and the person is showing me what's about to happen, you know, which IPOs are going to pop, and which ones are going to take off, and which ones are going to go down. And I mean, you just constantly, on the policy end, the briefings you get, I don't know, I just always try to dot I's and cross T's to not be that guy. And my, my wife got mad at me because when the pandemic first hit, I told her to, uh, to check out this one stock that she had never heard of this company before. And I said, follow it. We can't buy it. She's, she's, she was mad at me how it took off. I said, it's called the Zoom. <laughs> and then uh, I think at that, yeah, at that time, it was like well under $100. And you know, next thing you know, it was up over 600 And she's, she's punching she's me watching. and I have the black and blues. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if it's redeeming. Now I, I've been updating her as it goes down. <laughs> makes her, hopefully it makes her feel a little better. All right, I have some questions from the audience. Basically, who do you want to be the next Republican nominee for president? I haven't endorsed anybody. My focus is on the November 2022 election for governor of the state of New York. And that's for the next couple of months, honestly, that is all I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about the 2024 presidential race. Uh, once we get past November, we'll see who decides to run and see how things are going. And then we'll likely endorse somebody. All right. Um, I want to vote for you, but do you still believe Donald Trump won the election? If so, do you have any proof? So I've actually never stated that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. Uh, I, my, my, the, the source of my objection in, uh, in January of 2021 was how non-state legislative actors uh, were setting the administration of the election. So there's going to be more pandemics. There's going to be natural disasters. The U.S. Constitution says that state legislators, state legislatures determine how an election is administered. And what happened was in the name of the pandemic, non-state legislative actors were just doing their own thing and not seeking approval. So if you're the Pennsylvania Secretary of State entering into a friendly lawsuit settlement with the League of Women Voters and just, you know, like five minutes before the election, just changing how an election is going to be administered, you can't do that. The U.S. Constitution says you can't do that unless the legislature delegates that authority to you, which in, you know, this particular example didn't happen. The Wisconsin, a Wisconsin elections commissioner telling their voters how to get around the state signature verification law and voter identification law. You can't do that. There were state to state, there were these calls that were being made. By the way, it even happened uh, in New York, the absentee ballot portal gets open. In New York, the law is that if you want to request an absentee ballot, you can request an absentee ballot. But what, what you can't do for everyone else in that 2020 election is go into the portal and ask for 3,000 uh, absentee ballots to get sent to all different kinds of people who didn't request it. They have to request, they have to ask for their own ballot. The portal went open, it started getting flooded, and then the portal got shut. What's really interesting is that, and it never gets covered about this process that played out. By the way, as far as the violence goes, I don't want to ever see that happen again. It shouldn't have happened the first time. There's no room for looting, hurting people, stealing things. That whole scene of harming property, that's uh, harming individuals, 
it had no place then. As soon as I learned about it, instantly put out a statement condemning it, calling on people to get out of January 6th. Yeah. January 6th, 2021. I don't want to ever see that. There's no room for political violence in this country. I don't care if it's the day before an election. I don't care if it's the day after election. It has no place. The House of Representatives, the, the, the House of Representatives have people who represent these districts of 700,000 or so people who can articulate your objection on behalf of constituents who want you to articulate a concern. Do you know that every single time a Republican has been elected president, over the course of the last few decades, on the same date, at the same time, in the same place, Democrats have objected to the results. And there were debates. It happened every time. It happened January 7th, January 6th, 2017. You go back and you can watch the videos. It happened January 6th of 2005. And there was, I mean, there was a debate. There was a vote. They actually had a senator and a House member, and there was, there was a whole debate over it. This was covered as if this was the first time that that ever happened. That actually always happens whenever a Republican gets elected. And by the way, if, if we were to, to look in our crystal ball and it's January 6th of 2025, it might happen again. And by the way, that's okay. Because th th as far as the people go, if you want to articulate an objection to the administration of an election, that's actually the only opportunity to do it. This is an issue that I believe that whether your candidate comes in first or second, we should always be welcoming. Now, me, I happen to be someone who believes we should have voter ID in all 50 states. I care about election integrity. We lean into the laws that are on the books. You know, we'll have poll watchers when you vote, poll watchers when they open the ballot. You can closely observe the signature verification. If you submit an objection and you hold it, a judge has to decide upon it. If you request an absentee ballot for a dead relative, we'll have you arrested we lean into the laws that are on the books here in the state. But the one thing that I am sensitive to as a country, at no point have you ever heard me call the election of Joe Biden illegitimate. Those words have never come out of my mouth. At the same time, I'm not going to ignore that there was this issue in the name of the pandemic which can happen again. And if the shoes are on the other foot, what I don't want is that in the borough of Manhattan, that the, the Board of Elections is able to just come up with their own rules. Or in some red county or counties across the state that some county elections commissioner can just come up with their own rules. So that's, uh, that's a little bit of getting into where my head at was at then. By the way, my speech is on YouTube. So you know, here's the great thing about this day and age is that you can actually just go back to the tape, and that's what I'm talking about on the House floor. That's what uh, my statements were focused on. I was just looking at some polling before this about what percentage of people no longer trust that elections will be free and fair, and I think it's like close 50% across the board, and I know it's even higher amongst Republicans. How concerned are you about that, and what do you think can be done about it? Because whether they are free or fair maybe doesn't matter if a huge percentage of the people, I mean, matters, but it's a separate problem in of itself that people don't believe it. I subscribe to the theory that we should always be looking for ways to make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. 
New York, as I mentioned, has all these different laws that are on the books. I would support a voter ID law in New York. And as I said, I believe that there should be voter ID everywhere. I don't support ballot harvesting, which is something that is getting legalized in some states. I don't think that that's something that we should have here in New York. If you win an election, you want to be able to stamp all you care. You, you care about the certification of the election, the seating, getting your people there. Your it, it's, it, it's a transfer of power. And I won, you lost. There are sore losers and there are sore winners. There are insensitive losers and insensitive winners. There are, there are people on both sides of this. By the way, they happen in small elections. You know, imagine running in a race and you lose an election by 17 votes. You lose an election by, by five votes. It's tough. And if you win one, you have to realize that half the people didn't vote for you. You, you can't then say that you're, if, if you're challenging that person's leadership, you, well, then you're no longer a New Yorker and you have to get on a bus and move to Florida. You have a job to represent everybody. That doesn't mean that you need to be all things to all people. This is, our, this is the United States of America. You can't. I feel like we have to do a better job, people who are winning elections, to understand these concerns and to be sensitive to them. Because when we fight each other, somebody has a question about an election, it's best for the whole process. It's best for what's ahead for people to be working together, to, to be working, there should be a process of validating an election. It's like closely observing ballots being opening. New York allows it. Other states don't. When, if you can't closely observe it, you lose trust. Do you remember the video that came out of Georgia where there was like a surveillance camera and there's people who leave and then they, they have like boxes that come out from like under a desk and they start running the ballots. Everyone had their theories. And whatever you thought it was, the lack of sensitivity for the people who had a different theory is not healthy for the process. It's good for there to be an explanation. But what was happening was the, the officials in Georgia can just go to the microphone and say, this was a flawless election. There was absolutely nothing that happened anywhere that any of you are allowed to be concerned about. It was perfect. Now, let's say that you're subscribing to a theory, true or not true, but you legitimately have concerns. You have a question. You want to know what happened. By you not articulating to the people what you found from your investigation there is distrust that endures over years. And then when people are asking, is the, is the process free and fair? I think what people find to be least fair is that they have concerns of things that they see with their own eyes. And they're just being told that they're wrong. And certain things require more than just being told you're a conspiracy theorist, you're not... I don't even want to hear your concern. It was the first perfect election in the, in the history of the country. And by the way, that, that subscribes to the next time. You know, it's 2024. I don't know who's coming in first, and I don't know who's coming in second. 
But regardless of who comes in first and regardless who comes in second, once the election is over and you have a new government that's seated, everyone should be trying to work together to move our country forward as best as possible. And one of the best ways to do it is if there are concerns about what happened, let's say it's close. You might have Florida in 2000. Imagine you're, you're on the Al Gore side of that race and you have to support President Bush, and you feel, you, you believe, you know that your candidate won that race, that's not easy. And if you're George Bush, you have a duty to be sensitive to the fact that the race was that close, and these people have concerns, and you shouldn't just say, hey, you lost. You're a loser, you're a conspiracy theorist, I don't want to hear from you, you're out of power. And I feel like the way that our country all around has handled this conversation in not just like the weeks after and the months, but even still to this day, is a poor lesson learned of what to do if there is a next time. Next time in the context of concerns from people who come up just short. The Republican brand, basically the Republican brand has been demonized in the last few years, but maybe longer than that. Um, Who can repair it and make it acceptable again to the broad population? A, be it follow on by saying, what makes you a Republican and what do you think being a Republican is all about? In places like Turkey and Syria and some other nations, anyone who disagrees with you on the opposite side of the politics is a terrorist. Everybody calls each other terrorists. If you are pro-Erdogan, then anyone who's anti-Erdogan is a terrorist. If you're anti-Erdogan, then anyone who's pro-Erdogan is a terrorist. A lot of countries subscribe to this theory. Now, over the course of the last decade and a half or so, there have been new nicknames to go after the right. Started simple. You are your Tea Party. You're a right-wing extremist. You're a racist. You're a Nazi. You're a white supremacist. You're ultra-maga. We're running out of names where the next name might be, you're a terrorist. Kathy Hochul, my opponent, is a Democrat. I believe that some of her positions are further to the left and out of touch with what the people of New York want. She is a New Yorker. I do not call on her to get on a bus and leave the state. There are, there are times where in the heat of battle, uh, you have an opponent branded. Right now, I've called on Kathy Hochul to debate at least five times. I accepted our first two debate requests from CBS2 and PIX11. I admit, I posted a hashtag a few weeks ago and it said, hashtag scaredycat. If I run out of names, if that's the best I could come up with, I promise you, the next name that comes out of my mouth will not be terrorist. I feel like when we're engaging in these races, it's okay to compare yourself to your opponent. You could talk about your opponent. What is it about, the, about them that you feel like voters need to know and vice versa? But the one thing that I'm really, really sensitive to is that our country never gets to the point 
Well, Republicans are calling Democrats terrorists. Democrats are calling Republicans terrorists. And by the way, side rule, it's really helpful if nobody is subscribing to the, the theory that anything that we see in front of us has any type of analogy to Hitler, Nazis, and the Holocaust. That is something that gets thrown around a lot. The only time that anyone should be comparing anything to Hitler, the Nazis, and the Holocaust is when you are talking about some type of a historical lesson that is about Hitler, the Nazis, and the Holocaust. There's just certain rules in how we engage in this debate. So, I mean, as far as how Republicans are being branded, listen, there are going to be names that are going to get called, and I actually I think it's going to get worse. Uh, and I feel like the next name isn't going to be less outrageous. The next name they come up with will probably become more outrageous, and then our politics will even further devolve. Uh, as far as why I am I'm a Republican, I believe, I, I believe in limited government. I have a view of protecting freedom, having a strong border, fiscal responsibility. Uh, I'm concerned about the way we handle budgeting and debt. I have voted against. When, when it was one-party Republican rule, there were votes that would come up where we're voting on a debt limit increase that I would vote against, or there's a vote that might come up on an appropriation bill or, uh, or some other appropriation-related item. By the way, sometimes I'd vote for something, and sometimes when Democrats were in you know, the White House, there's an appropriations bill that I would vote for. But it's not about voting for a fiscal item one way if it's Republicans in charge automatically and then voting the opposite way just because there are, there are Democrats in charge. I really am concerned about the direction of this country as it relates to our economics, our fiscal restraint. I see dates that are a decade in the future for some type of a spending program and I see that, I feel like that is only 10 years away. Other people only view in terms of what's coming up in their next election. Anything after their next election, it doesn't matter. We'll deal with it then. That's the wrong attitude. When we were going through the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, on, here in our country, it was like 10 years, the sunset provisions, 10 years. That's a really long time. Iran was on the other side saying, 10 years in the life of a nation is nothing. And I feel like the way we're handling these, these fiscal issues that we view certain debts that are going to become due. And you look at the interest that we're paying in our debt. So there's a whole fiscal component of this conversation. But I, I love our republic. I love our country. I believe we have the greatest country in the history of the world. I believe that as far as our foreign policy goes, our, we, we have to strengthen relationships with friends, treat adversaries like adversaries, understanding that these adversaries do not respect weakness, they only respect strength. And I say that, and I, I say that not because I, I want war, but because I want to prevent it. I'd say you, there's a lot of things that go on that we can't be silent about. And when I say we need to do something, we need to speak up on something, it's not because I want to see us end up engaged in a military conflict. It's because I don't want to see us 
engaged in a military conflict. When vacuums are created, I like I, I want us to be responsible in thinking through, well, who's going to fill that vacuum? Because oftentimes it's filled by the aggressor. It's filled by, by the bad guy. I want a strong military. I want us to do more to support our men and women in law enforcement. These are all part of what motivates me to be a Republican. And I'm not saying that if you have the opposite positions of all of this, that you belong in some other political party or vice versa. Honestly, both parties should strive to have the biggest tent possible, maximum overlap as opposed to lines being drawn where you only belong in one camp or the other. All right. couple favorites to end us off here. Favorite book? Try, Try by Sebastian Junger is a, is a good one. There's uh, Once an Eagle. Has anyone read Once? Once an Eagle. I've read Once an Eagle. Oh, there we go. It's amazing. By the way, as a homework assignment, I would not give it out. It's really long. It's like 500-something pages, right? Yeah, but it's like a relatively quick read for 500 pages. Well, I mean, if you're Caroline Vick, it's a quick read. <laughs> I you love could read 2,000 pages in a night. So if you're slower like me, you know, 500, that, that'll actually take you a minute or a minute extra or two. I, I, you know, it's interesting. Courtney Massengale and Sam Damon are the two main characters in that book. And at the beginning of the book, Courtney Massengale is a lieutenant. Sam Damon is a bartender. And he, get, he, like, he enlists, and he's a private. At the end of the book, they're both generals. And there's two different ways that they end up getting there. And Courtney Massengale became a general by... Uh, politicking his way, networking his way up to being a general. Sam Damon worked his way up to being a general, earning the respect of everyone around him. And he was a an amazing uh, leader in the NCO Corps and then, and then the officer rank. As far as Tribe by Sebastian Junger, there's, there's uh, some interesting lessons in there. PTS, there's, if you care about post-traumatic stress disorder, our veterans, it, that's a much quicker read, by the way. Even, even I can get through that one in just a couple minutes. But, you know, one of the interesting takeaways from that is that here when we see a veteran, we say, thank you for your service. And there are a couple of examples that are given compared to that. One is, in Israel, you don't say thank you for your service. And the reason why is that everyone serves. So thanking somebody for their service in Israel is like thanking somebody for paying their taxes. In the Cherokee Indian tribes back in the day, you didn't thank someone for their service because everyone served. And there's just a lot in there as far as tribalism. I think it's somewhat connected to this conversation today. So if you want a quicker read, start with Tribe. Uh, favorite movie? Hmm, depends on my mood, right? Sometimes you want to laugh. Sometimes you want a good epic film. Uh, I, I'm, I'm soft for like the, like the great endings. I love the... I love the the scene in Braveheart where they're they're getting charged. You know, Mel Gibson's like, "Hold, hold," and waits to the last minute, and then they fight back. And they had uh, they, they were underestimated by their their opposition. Uh, you know, there, there's something soft for an end of a movie like you know a Rocky or a Rudy. There's you know, if you're looking for for good life, I'll tell you when I was a kid. Again, I'm 42. Uh, so I was about nine when Major League came out. Uh, so, you know, listen, if you want to go back, you know, Chris, who's here with me? Uh, I, I actually, I never call out Chris. Although everyone recognized Chris because in the New York Post and the, the criminal complaint, he was on the good side. When we had a little incident on stage, 
Say, hey, Chris, you're in the criminal complaint. It was a picture of him holding the, uh, the little weapon that the guy was, uh, had, had in his hands. Um, but Chris was younger when he watched Jaws. So that kind of affects Chris's uh, interest in, in jumping into the ocean tomorrow. Um, so yeah, those are, those are a few. But I would say it, it depends on what my mood is of what movie I'd want to throw on. All right, favorite Maxim. Well, I'll tell you right now, losing's not an option. All right. Thank you for joining us. For more world-class reporting and insightful commentary, visit NewYorkSun.com. That's NYSun.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for stories as they happen. Thanks for listening.